the Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, episode 615 for Sunday, July 24th, 2016. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek App. The show that's like car talk for Apple geeks, if that makes sense to you. And it was pointed out to me when I was over in Europe that that does not necessarily resonate with everyone. And I know that. So what it means is you send in your questions, your tips, and your cool stuff found. We answer your questions. We share your tips. We share your cool stuff found. The goal is for all of us to learn at least, we can do this, four new things each and every time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include Fat Cat Software at fatcatsoftware.com slash MGG, makers of Power Photos and also iPhoto Library Manager. Coupon code MGG saves you 20%. We will talk about that more a little bit later. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, where it's almost as hot as red fishbone. <laughs> nobody knows exactly nobody has any idea what i mean by that. No. But, um, but yes this is uh this is john f braun how you doing today mr john f braun i'm staying cool man got the uh, upstairs ac uh doing its thing thank you mr carrier yeah i came into the inventor of that and oh, uh, that's right yeah yeah well I saw some articles, and uh, I guess uh, uh, currently uh, United Technologies is the owner of that company, uh, Carrier, and they, uh, what I understand, make air conditioners. But yeah, boy, that guy was, uh, many people throughout the world, thank you, sir. Willis Carrier, is that right? I, I don't remember his first name, but his la- uh, I know because Carrier is a, you know, they named the company after. Yeah. The guy did the cool stuff. So it involves gases and compression and decompression and, uh, and all that great stuff. Sweet. But Fun boy. Stuff. I had no idea. Yeah, there's I'm one sure thing. Check. Ding. Right? That's the, one, the first new thing I learned. So that's I'm great. sure you're uh, taking advantage of uh, that technology as well. I, right yeah. Now. I walked into the studio. Uh, I, I had a little bit of time. So I came over here about a half hour early and played my drums for, you know, 25 of those 30 minutes and had not turned on the AC. And by the time I finished, it was like, oh, yeah, that's right. It's warm in here because it's, you know, the second story room that's totally insulated in every way, shape and form. And so once it gets hot, it stays hot. But uh, but I kicked on the AC. The AC here is, is pretty strong, so it, it, it can deal with it very, very quickly. And now it's it's quite comfortable here. Uh we did some cool stuff found last week. We skipped a lot of tips because uh, of time constraints. So we are going to do a little bit of a tip marathon to start this show. Hopefully, uh, you know, 20 minutes or so. And then, and then we've got some of your questions to go through as well. So starting with Mike, Mike has a tip to share. He says, I have used the trick of holding down command and clicking and moving a partially obscured or background window without having to focus or without having focus, switch to that window and to bring it to the front. Uh, today, I wanted to have a small child window on top of a main window, but wanted to resign the resize the background parent window with window without causing it to gain focus and my small window disappearing behind it. Holding command and dragging the corner of the background window allowed me to resize it without having it gain focus and coming to the front. 
So this is very cool. Uh, and I always forget that this is possible, but if you hold down the command key, you can move windows in the background. Like we're talking about not just finder windows, but application windows, anything. Uh, if you can see the title bar, you can move it. And as Michael uh, or Mike, I should say points out, you can also grab the edge of it and resize it. He does say one caveat when the window is in the foreground and you resize it, the typical pointer arrow cursor would change into a resizing arrow. You don't get that when it's in the background. So you just have to trust that it is going to work. So thanks, Mike. Good, good stuff. Phil writes, he said, uh, in Apple Calendar, if you do a search and enter only a period, the results come back in list view in the right column. It appears to be an unfiltered list of all the events in the calendar from oldest to newest. He says, uh, BusyCal has a better implementation, but this is available to everyone built in to their Mac. So thanks for that. Uh, thanks for that tip. That's, I had no idea. That's good what? stuff. What? Look at that. I know. I just that's, tried it. That's why we love these things. You know where I think a lot of these rest, but, uh, but we'll continue. But um, there is an, uh, a dandy article from our house at Apple that is like a comprehensive list of all the keyboard shortcuts. And mm. I, I believe many of these, though I don't think this one yeah, is this, included. This seems like a, yeah, this is less <clears throat> of a keyboard shortcut and more of an you know, undocumented feature. Yeah. Well, I think this one was a happy accident, as we like to call it. Is I'm it sure he was in yeah, the calendar could... one time and said, oh my gosh, I hit period and... Yeah, wow. There you go. Look what happened. Look what happens. Yeah. <laughs> that SQL query works that way. Huh? Okay. <laughs> yep. All right. Uh, Matt has, uh, has something to share. Hey, John. Hey, Dave. This is the OS 10 nerd occasional drop in visitor to the uh, chat room. Um, wanted to pass along a quick tip that I found this evening. I'm not sure if you guys are aware of it or not. I was uh, texting my niece from uh, iPhone uh, 6S uh, running 931, and I wanted to uh, send a Spanish phrase to her, and I wanted it to start with a upside-down exclamation point. Um, so what I did was on my keyboard, I went to the exclamation point, I push and held, and I expected to have the inverted exclamation point there. Um, what I found was instead it had turned the entire keyboard into a trackpad. And from there, I was able to slide the cursor back and forth along the line of text that I was typing and be able to pinpoint place that cursor anywhere I wanted. For So, yeah. Okay. So this is the way the uh, keyboards with force touch, 3D touch. Sorry, I get this. Why, why Apple uses the same name for uh, two different names for the same technology on the, on the iPhone. It's 3D touch. So the 6S and the 6S Plus are the only two iPhones with this. But yeah, if you hold on a character like the the exclamation point, it will switch. But if you push through it, then it turns into this trackpad, and it is a handy way. In fact, it's. It's one of the things I miss on the iPhone SE uh, because even though it's the newest of all the iPhones, it is not 3D touch enabled. But uh, but yeah, yeah. Handy stuff. Thank you, Matt, for for sharing that. Great, uh, great tip. Great reminder. Very, very good. Yeah. And I think you pointed out on both OS 10 and iOS, if you do a non force 3D hold yeah, down on the character. Hold, right. Yeah. Um, and actually this was very important to me because the other day I had to do a post and, uh, wanted to get Pokemon correct. And of course, Pokemon has an accented E. Oh uh, yeah. Unfortunately I chose the wrong accent, but 
You got to go the right direction. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. The, the woman uh, that we rented a place from in, in France, we did Airbnb everywhere and her name was Genevieve and she had accents on, uh, the, she had accents on two E's and they were the different accents. One of them went one way and one went the other. It was like, oh man. Oh. Thankfully, iOS, once I typed it out once, it remembered. And the next time I typed it, it just auto did it for me. So it's, it's good stuff. And we're not going to talk about Pokemon Go, even though both you and I are playing it. Oh, we could, but we'll talk about it later. Let's get through these tips. So Louis writes, he says, in episode 612, a listener was asking about transferring Mac Photos library. And in the process, uh, he mentioned that uh, he is missing the simple folder structure available from Picasa. Lightroom uses the same mechanic where you import pictures into a Lightroom catalog, but all your pictures remain wherever you want them to be on your drives. Then within Lightroom, you can create folders, move pictures, etc., which is done on the drive. So instead of it being stored in a package like uh, Photos does, Lightroom stores them in just normal folders like Picasso used to. It says, obviously, Lightroom is not free, but after the Aperture bailout, I thought it wiser to stick with a company dedicated to photo management and editing. Uh, so thank you very much, Louis. That's, uh, that's helpful. So if you are lamenting the uh, retirement of Picasa for the Mac, Lightroom might get you at least that one feature from it that you care about. So, Chris uh, has a, a, a couple of tips here about uh, traveling. He says, I finished listening to MGG614 and you reminded me that I meant to let you and potentially your listeners know about three services that I use that are travel related. The first is TUGO. The second is Skype call forwarding. And the third is GigSky. He says, I travel a lot and the nature of it falls into two categories. The first is long-term projects based in a particular place. Uh, He says, I'm currently in Brazil where I have been for two years. This makes it practical to have a local SIM and data services and why Wi-Fi at my apartment and all of that says the second is where I have to visit a particular place for just a few days. And it's not practical or financially viable to set up uh, a fixed infrastructure. He says a combination of the above services uh, is my current modus operandi. TUGO is a UK O2 service where you install an app on your phones that registers the phone uh, and will then let you connect via Wi-Fi to your phone number. Skype call forwarding says I, paid for a Skype account. And that means that I can have a UK Skype number. So I set my UK mobile phone to forward calls to my UK Skype number. Then I can set Skype to forward to my Brazilian phone number and voila, it's all good. And finally gig sky is actually gig sky is pretty awesome. I used it on my iPad in Europe. Gig sky is a data only SIM that you get, but it is carrier agnostic and it comes with an app where you can buy data a la carte for whatever country you're in, it's really, really smart the way they've set this up. It's, um, it, it, you know, it comes with enough data to get yourself rolling wherever you are. And then you just kind of go from there. So very, very cool service. And, and yeah, they all, uh, they all, they all work. So thanks, Chris. Very, very cool stuff. And yeah, gig sky, I can recommend them. I've used them and, um, Excellent. In fact, I think we were the first uh, show to announce Gig Sky here years and years ago. So fun stuff. Another one from a different Chris, uh, this time about networking. If I can find it, where is it here? Oh, never mind. Uh, So this was actually an an article I found on Jason Snell's Six Colors site, but it was from Chris Humphreys, who is a Mac, Mac Geekab listener. So I will credit both Chris and Jason for this. There's an article we'll point to iOS 10 
now has a blank currently setting panel for Ethernet. If you plug in uh, a USB to Ethernet adapter into your lightning port, or if you plug a lightning to USB adapter and then, then USB to Ethernet, uh, Ethernet will work. This is true in iOS 9. In iOS 10, when you do this, you actually get an Ethernet settings panel, with, which has no options yet. But maybe that means something is coming because right now we have no way of configuring Ethernet on iOS 9. So iOS 10 has that. So thank you to Chris and Jason, of course, for, uh, for pointing us to it. Fun stuff. Uh, let's see. In mail, you know, these, there, there's these things. And this is why I like quick tips. There's something I use on every computer that I have. And never think about it until someone was looking over my shoulder and was like, hey, whoa, what is that? So you know how in Safari, John, you can have a uh, favorites bar, right? And that way uh, you can like drag whatever your favorites are to your to that, that little bar that's there. And then you can just click on it and go there, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? The bookmarks bar, I guess, so, favorites bar. So in the view menu, yeah. So in the view menu, you can say hide favorites bar or show favorites bar. Right. Just let people know if, no, if that's right. you don't see yours, then go to the view menu and, and you can see it. And yes, I, I actually, and then I, I also believe Dave that it syncs uh, via iCloud. If you'd like to do so. If you're syncing to your, your other, to your other, which I find amazing. You know, it, it shocks me sometimes how handy that is. And then I'm like, wow, I bookmarked this or I made it a favorite on one computer and then it's available to all my devices. Yeah. It, it's awesome. I think. Yeah. So there's that, which is a tip in and of itself, but you can do the same thing with mailboxes in mail. And these can be regular mailboxes or smart mailboxes. If you simply take the uh, mailbox and drag it up into the toolbar, you can have stuff there. And a lot of, uh, I think mail by default, it's been so long since I've set up mail by default uh, without having it sync any settings, but I think it puts like your inbox uh, up there but you can drag any mailbox you want up there. So if you've got things filtering into different places, it can be really handy to drag those up. Like for us, I have my, our, our Mac Geek Gab premium and our Mac Geek Gab, you know, regular mailboxes up there. So I can see, are there new messages there? I can quickly navigate there by clicking on them. It's really, really handy. And you can, when you're archiving things, if you want, you can actually drag up to there. So it's full featured, always there. It's, it's free. So, you know. There you go. Remember what you paid for it, but it works. It's good stuff. Scott brings us, uh, we have a couple from Scott, I think. Oh no, just one. Scott says, uh, this is more of a reminder as a tip because it's been around for a long time, but I use it so often. I wanted to make sure everybody knew when you are using iOS, if you have a list and this could be mail, this could be, actually, it doesn't have to be a list. It has to be anything that scrolls. And if you are scrolled down, anywhere past the top if you tap the top of the window it will automatically scroll all the way back up and i gotta be honest i i didn't know about this for for many many ios versions in fact i think it was jason snell i was standing with him like god i hate this when i have to scroll all the way back up to the top and he was like um dude tap here like oh <laughs> oh yeah that's right like i remember seeing somebody do that on stage once he said yeah it's been there forever like okay thanks man but that's the thing about these quick tips right Th these things that we all take for granted and 
we may or may not assume that everyone knows them, but we just don't think about them as tips. We just think about them as how we interact. So it, it's easy to forget that, uh, that they can be uh, trainable moments for all of us. And that's why I share this little anecdote. It wasn't that long ago. It maybe was three years ago that I learned about the, the, this one tap the top. It was an embarrassing moment, but it was okay. You know, it's like, all right, I'll buy you the next beer. We're all, we're all good. <laughs> ah, anyway, moving along, uh, three more from me. And then I think we got a couple from you, John. Jason has this to share. He says, if you need more power user capability, uh, try uh, shift option clicking on the Bluetooth icon in the menu bar. A few goodies are in there, including the debug menu and the ability to reset the Bluetooth module. I stumbled across this recently on my hunt to fix my Bluetooth, which would not see any new devices. Resetting the module fixed the issue. And uh, he's got a little link for us here uh, that, that talks more about this feature that we'll put into the show notes for all of you. But fun stuff. It's good. It's, um, I love these little things. I had no idea that existed. Uh, you might have, John. Have you we talked about it before? Did I just skip that? No, I verified it's there. It's, uh, okay. it's one of those mysterious, uh, you know, if you've got yeah. some time to kill folks, um, click on menus and hold down any combination of shift, control, alt, or command. Yeah. And you may be surprised that though, uh, most people don't have time to do that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and then lastly, one from, uh, we will refer to you as Mr. X. That's right. Uh, I was just listening to episode and Mr. X we use as a gender, uh, non-specific term. So many of the Mr. X's in the past have been from, uh, females as well as males. Uh, and, and we, and we do this when you ask, I was just listening to episode 608 when you were talking about tips for the genius bar. Uh, to start out, just FYI, I am a senior Apple Care advisor. In full, I am in full support of all of the tips that you gave in the show, and I would say that they apply equally for when you are calling Apple Care for support. I would add one more step that you didn't mention for troubleshooting before calling or going in, and that would be trying safe mode. Between safe mode, normal user, and test user, that will go a long way to helping isolate the issue. Even better, if it happens in all three places, it might be a good idea to try a reinstall from recovery without erasing before you take it in or call. So thank you very much, Mr. X. And uh, honestly, I don't even remember the name or the gender of this person. I think that's probably best. So. Oh, wait, I got it. Uh, John. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man, you, uh, you've got a couple. So uh, you've got quite a few, actually. Take it away. Yes, we do. Yeah, we're clearing out the queue here. All right. So from Steve. Thank you, Steve. So Steve says, hi, guys. In your most recent episode, you had a special section on the Synology NAS. I'd like to add a few items. First, in DSM-6, DSM-6, of course, being their uh, uh, latest version of their software, they added a new mode for port binding that does not require anything special on the switch itself. Not sure how they do it, but it is transparent for the user and easy to configure. It is called Balance SLB. I'm going to guess SLB stands for something load balancing. That's, but I verified oh, that's very this. technical, yes. But I verified this, and actually it is a known mode. Um, the only caveat is that it seems to require, uh, uh, from what I see of the description, it requires you to plug into two different switches. So I, I don't know if it's generally usable. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot, but it's certainly cool. Um, and then the thing is, uh, I had the question. I was scratching my head, Dave. Um, can you bind or bond 
or link aggregate more than one port or more than two more ports than two. on the yeah. Synology. And he showed a screenshot. So his unit has four. And he was able to do this with all four. That's cool. Yes. That's great. Yep. And then as a, a, a little niggle here, um, he did say that um, I, I was technically incorrect in that uh, MFS was the first Mac file system. That is not true. It was actually pro No, no M- MFS was the first Mac file system. But and I qualified my statement. So he said, the, uh, so but, I said, but it was the not Mac- the first Apple file system. That's right. Correct. Yeah. Well, I believe the first was, was it ProDOS? No, ProDOS was, was late, late in the game. In fact, I think ProDOS came was out. Was it DOS 3.3? Uh, was that the, the first? I think there was something before DOS 3.3, but it was just DOS, yeah, with the basic interpreter built in. Right. So I said to him, dude, or, or cut not. Me some- yeah, I mean, it didn't have it at first. That's right. Yeah. So I said, cut me some slack. I'm talking about the first Mac operating system. Jeff Parker in the room has a, he, he ups your something with a static. It is static load balancing is what SLB is. Ah. So thanks, Jeff. Okay. So I'll give it a whirl on my switch, but um, it seems the advantage is that you don't need to do anything on the switch. All right. Leon gives us a tip here, and I think we may do a deep dive into this in the future, Dave. I don't know. But he's like, but he says, hey, guys, I was way behind on episodes of Finally Caught Up. I love the deep dive on Synology. Thank you. We loved it, too. Yeah, we're gonna, we are about- going to do more deep dives on other topics. There's, in fact, we're starting to build a list. It'll, obviously, not every week, but maybe every four to eight weeks, maybe averaging six. Uh, yeah. And we have a list, and, and we'll share that. Actually, I'll share it at the end of the we show. We'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll okay. share it, and and hopefully that'll spark some more ideas, and, and we'll go from there. But go ahead. Yeah. All right. He says, uh, I had forgotten about data scrubbing, and actually, Dave, I looked at the help page, and I confirmed it is only available in units with three or more drives. Makes sense. Or potentially. Yeah. So that's cool. Here's a cool tip about Mac OS X server that, in my mind, makes it worth the 20 bucks if you have more than one Apple device in the house. It is the caching service. It caches all sorts of Apple content, apps, iTunes content, etc., Set it up on your server and your Apple devices automatically use it. The first device to request the content gets it onto the server. Every request after that pulls it in from the cache. Depending on your home network speed, this can make for substantial time and internet bandwidth savings. So I guess it's even more of a bonus for anybody whose ISP has data caps. Check out the full list of content types supported by the caching server in the support note. And he has a link and we will link to the link. Speaking of OS 10 server, up. And yes, he says this. Maybe good for a deep dive. And I'll have to admit, Dave, uh, I'm, I'm running OS X server, and I think you are as well. I, I, I would say that I don't use it on a regular basis, but I think I may want to dive into it a bit more. Yeah. Because uh, for the money and for the benefits like this, because I know it offers servers for a lot of the, the other things that we take for granted, calendar, contacts, uh, a lot of things. Um, you know, if you can run your own versus uh, paying somebody some coin why the heck not why not yeah yeah um, i agree all right so what do we got next here brian okay brian has a really good one this is like a little secret <laughs> or a ui screw up on apple's part <laughs> or both i discovered uh, so he says hi david john i discovered a way to know how many contacts you have on your devices address book which for those that don't know is the old name of what is now called contacts used to display this prominently, but contacts does not. I always wondered how well the data was syncing between machines, and now I know. To see how many entries you have in, a, in contacts, select all contacts and scroll down through the list. 
entry where you will see the number of contacts currently in place. This works on the Mac, iPhones, and iPads. In my case, the total the totals differed from machine to machine and differed from Google Contacts and iCloud. Hmm. I primarily sync with Google and most of my Macs have over 100 contacts, uh, more contacts than Google. My one machine that syncs with iCloud has 100 fewer. Okay, so it sounds like he needs this feature. And <laughs> maybe we all do. So, yeah, so to do it, say that, say that again, just so it doesn't get lost. How, how do you see all of, how do you see the total number of contacts? Well, I'm pretty sure what you do, and I, I verified this, is you basically go to contacts sure. and you say select all. I, I think is the way to do that. And it will then say, oh, oh here's how many contacts. X number have. of, oh, yeah. So it does it for me. I have it in three pane views. So it says for me, 995 cards selected on the right. And then also at the bottom, 995 cards. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have too many contacts in there. But I don't know. Maybe not. It's good. I Sweet. do too. You know, I have every now and then. It's at the bottom of the list. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Kiwi Graham in the chat room. Hi, uh, folks at MacGeekGab.com slash stream. Thank you for helping with the show notes and keeping us on track. But uh, yeah, Kiwi Graham says it's weird that it's at the bottom of the list. And I agree. Strange. All right. What else we got, Mr. Mr. John F. Braun? All right. We got something from Paul. And I don't think we'll go into too much detail. I think we'll cut and paste it into a note that will link you somehow with our new infrastructure here. But okay. Um, it kind of verifies what was floating around in my brain, but he says, gentlemen, thank you so much. <laughs> he doesn't know who he's talking to, does he? <laughs> uh, we're, we're gentle most of the time. That's right. I was, it, and we're it, men it was most more the, of the time. The men part was, was sort of the, the one that, that I thought people might take a question with, but uh, it's fine. We, we right. have fun here. Here's a little tip for the listener copying the huge 226 gigabytes, uh, 226 gigabyte iPhoto library. Finder will most likely be the fastest, but if it hangs during the copy, it will be hard to recover. You, meaning me, I think, um, had mentioned DD and RSync. I've never used DD to copy files, but I have used it to make bootable media. RSync, on the other hand, I use daily. And I think I'll wrap it up, but basically what, uh, our, uh, what our friend is saying is that RSync has the capability to resume a copy if things go wrong, I think I'll leave it at that, Dave. Cool. Yeah. Because there's a lot of detail yeah, here. It's true. But RSync is your pal if you don't know what. Yeah, because it, com you, it you, compares you, the destination with the source and only syncs that which is different. So it, it beats on the drives less than, um, and, it, and it, it, it's smart enough to do it. If, especially if you're doing it remotely, but remote R-Syncs can, can be very cool because uh, the remote machine is doing the hard work of scanning the, itself. So mm. it's not like it's scanning across the network um, if, you're, if you're doing it that way. But if, if it's local, then it's, it is the local machine because it doesn't make a difference. Uh, but yeah, R-Sync's pretty, pretty cool. It can be, can be. It can be. Yeah, yeah. Whoops. Oh, just that three pace there. Okay, sorry about that. But um, my suspicion was correct in that our good or, or our friends who make carbon copy cloner uh bombic um in their credits so i was correct in my suspicion they actually include or use so i think they use their own version of rsync which you can tell because if you go to their credits page for carbon copy cloner 4 they make a reference to rsync ah nice so that that is part of what makes carbon copy cloner such a great tool. 
Yeah. They use rsync versus something else because it's just a great utility. Cool. All right. And I think we got one more here. I am almost running. Uh, okay. Dave. So Dave has something. Not you, Dave. Oh, you have. You usually have some good stuff. Um, <laughs> always have good stuff. And don't ramble on like me. But um, so Dave says, hey, guys, an update on my problem getting my touch ID to work consistently. So I think he wrote it to me and I, I pointed him to an article. Uh, Apple has an article indicating some of the idiosyncrasies of getting touch ID to work properly. Sure. Properly humidity and blah, blah, blah. All right. Hey, guys, an update. Through experimentation, I discovered the problem was that I wasn't pressing down hard enough. Hmm. Really? When training the fingerprints. Yeah. I, I, uh, I'll continue with what he said. Okay. Uh, uh, when training the fingerprints, the device forces one to press down to a certain extent. I guess I unlearned that over time. I now know that I need to press down more than I would like um, to activate. And he says he got caught with his fingerprints, but it's good. And then he follows on. Yes. So, so I, yeah. So I linked to the article about touch ID and the idiosyncrasies. Um, I, I would say Dave, I'm, I'm honestly surprised because the training should Last time I trained my devices, or my device right now, I'm still figuring out what to do with my iPad. Sure. Well, that doesn't have Touch ID anyway. So, right. But right. my iPhone does. But um, they'll usually yell at you if you're not pressing down hard enough, or they take enough samples where you would think that they get it. But um, Dave, thank you for... Um, so I guess Dave uh, did some experimentation and found that he just wasn't pressing down hard enough. I find also, Dave, the only thing I'll say is... Um, you may want to train uh, almost, uh, I would say anybody should do this. Train more than one finger. Oh, sure. Uh, it's just a, a quick, quick tip for me. I, I train, typically I train my right and left thumb because it depends on how I'm holding my phone, but I typically use my thumbs and I do both the right and the left. It'll accept either one. I, I don't know if you buy any, uh, what, 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 what's your strategy or your family or people, you know, Dave? Um, I, I do index and thumb on both hands. Oh, okay. So you have four. So you do four training sessions. Yeah, you can train okay. up to five on any device, uh, and so I, I use typically go four. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Don't start looking at the um, Reddit thread that Jeff Gamut likes to link to about people <laughs> testing Touch ID with all manner of body parts, extremities, extremities. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say this. It does work with the nose. I know that's what you were all wondering. So I've, I've saved you the time. No, you have to go to the no, we weren't wondering that. We were wondering something else. Oh, well, that's that's a shame, isn't it? <laughs> that's that's just a shame. What is not a shame, my friend, is our sponsor <laughs> for this episode, and that is Fat Cat Software with Power Photos. As I mentioned earlier, listen, this is mandatory software to have. If you use photos on your Mac and again, just so we're clear photos is the built in software with OS 10 that manages your photos and it does a great job. It's the thing that links you to iCloud photo library, all of that stuff. Fat cat software for forever has been the experts on managing your photos. They made iPhoto library manager. And now of course, when power, when photos came out, they made Power Photos. This provides you all the tools that Apple leaves out 
of their software. Why Apple leaves these things out, it doesn't matter because you can go get power photos. So you can create and manage multiple libraries, but you can like, sure, you can create multiple libraries with, with photos, but you can't move things back and forth between them. You can't like merge them in any intelligent way or any way, really. Well, you can with power photos. You can copy photos with metadata. Can't do that with, uh, with just photos. Find duplicate photos. Their duplicate finder rocks. And it will do it while you're merging libraries or just alone on a library. You can browse and search your library. And you can use this to migrate your iPhoto and Aperture libraries in intelligent ways. You really, it, if you have photos, and we all have photos, you need this. So what you're going to do is this. You're going to go to fatcatsoftware.com slash MGG, and that'll bring you right to the Power Photos page, and you can download it and play with it. And then when you go to buy, make sure you use coupon code MGG because that saves you 20%. Here's the bonus. When you buy Power Photos, you also get a license for iPhoto Library Manager. This is handy if you still have an iPhoto library around. It's a combined license, so you just get both. You don't have to stop and think, well, should I? No, just buy one. You get the other. It's included. It's how it works. Power Photos from Fat Cat Software, fatcatsoftware.com slash MGG. Coupon code MGG saves you 20%. Our thanks to Power Photos and Fat Cat Software for sponsoring this episode. John, we talked about multiple Ethernet ports. You want to dig in a little bit and, uh, and let Jeff's question lead the way here? Dude, I'm on a roll here. Go. I, I'm not going to stop. <laughs> Unless you stop me. And even if you stop me, it, I'm not going to stop. <laughs> it might be hammer time, but you're not going to stop, are you? <laughs> oh, gosh. I still watch that video. Man, I love that guy. I don't know what happened to him, but... Uh, hey, he overspent all of his money on his entourage. I think that's really? that like sums up. Yeah, that sums up the, 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 the what happened to him. Yes. Really? I Was think he so. Another one of these millionaires that just blew their their I think so. I think so. I don't know. I haven't bad. I don't spend a lot of time this is the most amount of energy and time that I've spent uh <laughs> talking about MC Hammer or thinking about MC Hammer in a long time. And now we've amplified it by like, you know, seventy five thousand mm. people or, or more. So that's awesome. Let's let's not do any more of that. Okay. So Jeff asked some good questions, I think. And he says, Dear Dave and John, how are you both? We're doing great. Um, I listened with interest during your last podcast recording, setting a Synology to use two Ethernet ports as one, as long as it's supported by the switch. I have two questions on this topic. First, how is this different from having the two cables plugged into two ports and not setting anything but leaving it as two ports? Isn't that the same thing? Well, I think I'll it, it that is right with now. SLB, as we just found. That's right. Yeah. Well, well, no. Well, I'm going to answer this question and say no. The thing is, if you don't explicitly bond or aggregate your ports, then what happens is if you have more than one Ethernet port, what's going to happen is you're going to have two ports with two different addresses. Right. When you bond ports, they basically at a certain level, and I'm not going to get into the OSI stack and levels and stuff, but basically the benefit of bonding is that you take multiple physical ports and they look to be one logical port. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, I'll give that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because on the Synology, when I say these two ports are now one, it appears as a single IP address. Now, the thing is, 
on a machine that has multiple Ethernet ports, if you don't bond them, then what happens is they each get their own address. Now, this can lead to chaos, Dave, right? Because they're going to get their own IP address. And I would say, for the most part, most people don't want I don't think it would computers. lead to chaos. I've well, actually uh, I've thought about doing this, and I'll explain why. Um, when I, I have my... The, the the device will use the first one in in its priority list, right? When when it's when it's advertising itself and all of that. So I think it would work just fine to have it. You wouldn't get any double speed benefits uh, out of this, right. right? But you would get. I was thinking of. So I have my Synology set to um, get a DHCP reservation from my router, so it always gets the same IP address. The problem is. When my router freaks out, which happens a lot, I test routers all the time. And when my router freaks out, sometimes my Synology will get a, uh, a, 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 a you know, a, a, a self-assigned IP address, and then I can't find it. And that's sort of a pain in the neck. So I've been thinking about assigning it like its own manual address, but I like having the the uh, the reservation because if I do decide to renumber my network... It just automatically happens. So I like to have, I would like to have both for that particular device. And I could do that with this. I could set the second one to be, or the third one or the fourth one, because I have four on, on the device I have, but, uh, but I could set that to be a, you know, a separate address that's fixed. And then I wouldn't have this problem. I don't know. It's, you know, we're, we're talking, I'm getting very nitpicky, but, but th that's the one use case I've come up with for wanting to do it that way. It's probably not all that great of a use case, but there you go. Okay. And another use case, Dave, is you know what? You could go to this fantastic website called MacObserver.com and we have this, this really smart guy. Well, well, we got this really smart guy, John Martellaro. And you know what? He wrote an article that will answer your question about this. So it doesn't answer the bonding question, but it answers the question that you just asked. And it's an article called How and When to Use Both Ethernet Ports on a Mac Pro. And he talks specifically about why you may want to do this to dovetail on what Dave just said. Nice. Right? Sweet. Yeah. I, I was Mar actually shocked Mar when I searched for this. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he gives a use cases that especially if you're like in a corporate or work environment where you have two separate networks and that's not unusual. You may have a public network and a semi-private or stuff like that. Then having two different IP addresses on two different ports is probably a good thing. A it, thing. It's still, yeah. it hurts my brain to think when you're running like a browser or email or stuff, how you convince them which port to use and which but IP address and stuff. It's, but, it's um, not that it doesn't hurt that hard. So it's no different. <laughs> no, think about this. It's no different than having both Wi-Fi and ethernet active on the same computer, right? It connected to the same, the same network. The same thing's going to happen. They're going to get IP addresses on the network if you if you run a DHCP server, which we all typically we all do. And if you don't, then you that's intentional and you're doing something weird, and that's okay. Uh, but but in general, they're both going to get IP addresses, and it decides which one to use based on network order. And you the set, priority that yeah, you set in network. You okay. set in system preferences, network. You set set service order, and whatever is at the top of the list, that's what should get it. So what, again, testing routers, a lot of times what I'll do, cause my Mac only has, actually it does have two ethernet ports in that I have a Thunderbolt dock connected to it that has a second ethernet port, but I don't have a second ethernet cable run to my iMac in the office. So what I often do 
is leave Ethernet connected to the network like it normally is. And that's where, you know, like the world is good for me. And then if I need to connect to a test router, I connect Wi-Fi from my Mac to this test router and it gets its own address from that one. And then I can I can actually talk to the, you know, the test router in Safari at the same time that I'm loading web pages. And it's fine because it knows when you're going out to the internet, use the one at the top of the list. And when you're talking to this other network, use that one. It's, it's all how networking works because it's two different IP ranges. Like my, you know, my home network is 192.168.42.x. And that yes, is a, is a uh, tribute to Douglas Adams. And, uh, <laughs> but it, but it, it, it's because I had to set it to something other than 192.168.1.x because I knew dot one is a default for many, many routers. Dot four, two is not. So my main network is dot four, two. And then if I plug into a new router and it gives me one, nine, two dot one, six, eight dot one dot X. Well, great. Now I can, you know, I can load both in my browser and OS 10 is smart enough to say, Oh, it's dot one dot whatever. Go this way. If it's anything else, go that way. And it works great. Nice. Yeah. Sweet. 42, of course, being the answer. It's the, the sad answer part. Yeah. The sad part is that the question is wrong. It always and is. And I hope I didn't spoil it for anyone. It always is. That's right. Yes, that's right. <laughs> well, it's the right answer to the wrong question, I think, uh, to sum it up. Yeah, but it so, is the right answer to what is the um, the second most significant uh, octet in Dave's uh, yes, home, it is. home local network. So there you go. All right. So to wrap it up here. So second, I have a Mac Pro, and we kind of answer this. So he says, I have a Mac Pro with two Ethernet ports, but for desk tidiness, I use the Ethernet port that's on the back of my Thunderbolt screen. This got me thinking as I use three screens, lucky me, could I speed up the connection to the Synology if I run another Ethernet cable from another screen to the switch? Um, so to clarify here, the thing is, what I think you're asking is, can you speed up your connection from your Mac? So when you bond ports, so in the case of the Synology, like in my case, the Synology, I have a two gigabyte two gigabit per second thing because I bonded two one gigabit ports together. You can do something similar on the Mac. Um, the thing is, yeah, well, you have to dig into the network uh, 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 system preference a bit here. So for the second question, if both ports appear in system preferences network, you may be able to bond them. And what you do is you go to the service menu, which is that tiny little gear. Then you select manage virtual interfaces. How intuitive is that? Mm. Then you click on the plus and then you will see new link aggregate. And if there's an eligible interface uh, to bond with the one that you have already selected, then you can select it and see what happens. Um, Apple has a swell little ditty on this in a little help article called OS 10 El Capitan Combine Ethernet Ports. And that's where you should look to see. Uh, they provide a bit more detail than I provided. Um, so maybe we'll do it. The, the Mac Pro, I think, being one of the few Mac machines that... Uh, uh, has and still, as long as they still make it, ships with an interface that has multiple Ethernet ports. Cool. All right, I think we're good. And I, I wanted to paste that, and I'm having a problem here. My cut and paste can, mojo can is... paste it uh, later. Yeah, I'll paste it later. Sweet. These Otherwise, aren't the droids you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you want to take us to Phil? 
Let's see, Phil. All right, Phil has a good one. I don't know if you have well, anything to add here, Dave. Topic, but um, it might be a quick one. Yeah. All right, hold on, Phil. Phil, where is Phil? Uh, there we go. All right, Phil asks. Phil says, "All right. Uh, all right. He says he lives on Cape Cod. All right, that's kind of fun. Um, welcome to uh, <laughs> the Northeast, where we have Comcast. Sorry about that." Um, and multiple Xfinity hotspots, which are good and bad. The good being the ability to connect sometimes when you need to. The bad is for some reason these hotspots take priority over my home Wi-Fi and Wi-Fi at the office. I know on the Mac that you can set a preference order to connect, but not cannot seem to find it anywhere on iOS. Any thoughts? Yep. And I think my thought out of the box, Dave, is that currently on iOS, there is no way to do this. Well... Um, or is, or, you know, I think I may have seen suggestions. Uh, so one thing I'll throw out here is that Apple does have an article called How iOS Decides Which Wireless Networks to Auto-Join. And one part of their ditty here, they say, um, when iOS evaluates SSIDs to auto-join, it prefers known networks, higher levels of security, and stronger relative signal strengths, RSSI. What I think they're glossing over, though, Dave, uh, maybe you agree, maybe you don't, and you know we can have a fist fight here or something. But um, let's do it. Uh, what what a known network is, and I think that's where the that's where I think iOS is lacking. Where you're going as, down, Braun. Oh no, that's not. <laughs> I, actually, I agree with you. Yeah, it it. So there is this priority list in OS 10 that you can see in system preferences, network wireless, uh, and and you can go and and actually change this list and remove things from it, but also reorder it. And whatever's at the top of the list will be prioritized over the others, assuming a they're available and, and some of these other things. Right. And having security is a priority, right? So I think that actually trumps the list. So if you've got something at the top of the list that, that has no security and then something second on the list that does, um, it will choose the second one where your problem comes in, uh, Phil, is that Comcast, as you've probably set up, has secure networks for its customers. You install a profile. You and I don't know what their network password is, but it's baked into this profile that we can install on our iOS devices. And if you're a Comcast customer, you should go and install this profile. We'll put a link. We'll find a link uh, and put it in the show notes so that you can just go and you, you visit this website and you download it. And, and now this profile is on your thing and you'll join it. And it's a good thing. Uh, but it sort of confuses this issue because sometimes those Xfinity Wi-Fi networks are either not the ones you want to join or also non-functional, and that's frustrating. Again, on OS X, you can reorder this list. On iOS, you cannot even see the list, let alone reorder it, but if you sync with iCloud, your iOS devices will, in theory inherit they will have the same list as your mac now whether they will <laughs> inherit the changes you make on your mac or push changes on their own well this is um you know a, an area of of great concern for me because every time i visit actually i think i've finally gotten logan wi-fi <laughs> out of my i was gonna ask you Dave, how do you feel about logan wi-fi because for whatever reason 
it does it not. For, it took years for me to get that out of my iCloud list. It won't purge that from your list. No, what I had to do was go to multiple computers and remove it from there. And then it finally started syncing the right way. What, what would happen is I would remove it from one machine and then another one would like push it back on there. So I had to go around and, and remove it from lots of computers. And now, like the last time I walked through Logan, it didn't grab the stupid non-functional Wi-Fi that's there. So it was, I was... This was like a nice welcome home from Europe thing to not to like be able to check my email when I got off the plane um, on, now, on AT&T, no less, because, you know, I hadn't been on AT&T for two weeks. So Now, we have a suggestion here yeah. from uh, the peanut gallery. Yes. Um, and peanuts are good. Uh, Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm mildly allergic to peanuts, as I found out in recent years. But uh, Really? Yeah, it's, it's the weirdest thing. I um, If I'm dehydrated and I eat. Like a, like I have to eat enough peanuts. One peanut's not a problem. But if I eat like uh, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and I'm dehydrated, I feel like a, a minor little, you know, tightening in the throat. But just what's a little mm. bit of anaphylaxis between friends. But uh, but but if I eat peanuts regularly, it sort of goes away. So, yes, mildly allergic, but uh, I don't wow. mind them. Yeah, but I mean, it's not it's like if I come over to your house and there's something with peanuts in it, I'm OK. You know, it's not going to kill me. So, wow. I know. Nice tangent there, Dave. Thanks. Wow, <laughs> I'm, I'm taking I'm, the job. I'm, I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to manage you a, a bit here, mm-hmm. but um, no. But we have a suggestion from the chat room: is that on your iOS device, um, perhaps disable auto join? And I wonder if that may coerce the share, especially if you're on iCloud. Which you know, iCloud's wonderful um, for Wi-Fi in that it kind of in the background records your access points, and I, I find it for the most part it does what I want. And then it'll join networks w- without me explicitly asking. But, sure. Um, like we got in the chat room here from NCSUC. Uh, I'm not sure where that. But um, disable auto join, and that may help you out in this cool. case. Yeah, um, but that's only that's on a per network basis, right? So you have to go. Yeah. You have to see the network in order to be able to edit that. It has to be in your list of visible networks and then you can go in with, you hit the little eye thing and uh, the, the, which yeah. is the eye in a circle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to admit, I run the same thing, Dave, um, like Xfinity, uh, Optimum, my, my local ISP yeah. is doing the dual. Uh, so if they give you a router or an access point, mm. they'll also want to set up something called optimum Wi-Fi with it, which uh, for the most part, I think is a good thing. You know, they segment them yeah. uh, in theory. So they're secure. So um, you're offering a benefit to your community and all that. But um, every now and then I'll find that my phone, even though I'm home, the thing is because I have an optimum Wi-Fi, last I checked, they actually have an app that'll let you check. I have one across the street from me. Every now and then it just won't let go. And then if I look on my phone, it'll say, yeah, I'm still lo- logged in optimum Wi-Fi. Yeah. And I'm like, nah, no, no, no. I don't no. think so. Yeah. No, I'm home, man. So, uh, and it'd be nice if there, there would be a way to force that. And sure, dude. If I'm home, and maybe maybe it'll come out in iOS, whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah when yeah. I'm at when I'm at my house, like maybe using my GPS coordinates, always log into my local access point, dude. Even if there's a, you know, my ISP nearby and kind of detectable. No, I'm home. So um, we'll yeah. See. I wish I could set one network to always be, like, leave this at the top of the list, no matter what else happens. Please, I wish I wish there was a way I could do that, but you can't because new networks get added to the top of the list. Is how it works. Anyway, um, I got a quick one from uh, from Ken here, John. That I'm gonna I'm gonna interject because it's a it's a good Go. question. Uh, 
And it opens the, a door that I want to open for us uh, about iOS 10. Because we, we will answer questions about iOS 10 because uh, at least one of us is running it. And I'm running watchOS 3 and, and macOS Sierra. And, uh, and it's available in public beta. And so you folks are going to be, uh, many of you are going to be playing with it. So it's part of the conversation now. Uh, Ken asked, he said, can you help me? I'm running iOS 10 beta on my iPhone 6S Plus. But when typing a message, I never see it replace text with emoji like demonstrated at WWDC. How do I turn that on? And the answer is it's always on, sort of. What you do is you type your text. Then once you've typed all of your text, tap the emoji button like you're going to add an emoji to the end of your message. As soon as you tap the emoji button and you and the emoji keyboard appears, that's when any text that you have typed that it matches will change color and you can tap that text or not. And it will show you what emoji or emojis make sense to it for that text. And you can pick it again or not. And that's how you do that. That it's, it's a very simple thing, but you've got to know to hit that emoji button and then it will work. And of course this only works if you're using Apple's keyboard if you're using a third party keyboard, then it's going to handle it as it would always handle it. This, you know, this is unique to Apple's keyboard and it's actually pretty handy. That said, Google's keyboard, which I, uh, what do they call it? G chat? No, it's not G chat. It's whatever Google's iOS keyboard is. That one has, um, an emoji picker. That's actually kind of interesting. You just, you type text and it will filter down emojis based on what you're typing. Uh, so that can be handy too. But, uh, but yeah, that's how that works on iOS 10 and it works quite well. So, and I'm actually having really good luck with iOS 10, uh, on my, on my iPhone. I'm running it on my SE, uh, watch OS three. It took me about a week, but now it's good. And I think I finally figured out what my problem was. It was just burning the battery all the way down, like really, really fast and I thought it was some app I was running. And so I was like, you know, meticulous. Like one day I would turn off a complication on the watch face and nope, that didn't do it. And so I'd turn another one off. And I finally realized you actually, it was when you texted me and I looked at my watch, John, and it, it showed me your phone number, not your name. I'm like, what's going mm -hmm. on here? Like I've got you in my contacts. So I went into the phone app on the watch and I went to contacts and I noticed at that point in time, it had only synced contacts from W down. And so I left it there and I saw it like one by one adding contacts to the list. My gosh, I wonder if it's been trying to sync my contacts and for whatever reason, I keep interrupting the process. So I just let it go. And it probably took an hour to get, you know, all the way from W up to A. And ever since then, my watch has been great. So there was something about when I first installed watchOS 3 that it just never kind of finished that part of the process and it had to had to go through it but now it's all good and as i said i've gotten you know 995 contacts so it was a lot but yeah nice. yeah it's running it, ios 10 i'm running the developer beta but it's this it, i think it's the same thing that that the um you're crazy the, man the public beta is sure yeah i know i understand you that. and michael michael in our chat room is yeah. also uh he loves to run betas of operating systems dude uh, being a software guy being a well, software no. guy, that's you should you should be comfortable my, with this. My my only no, my only caution is uh, never ever ever. And for anybody who's listening to this, uh, whether you're part of the developer program or part of the public beta program, yeah. If you decide to run 
beta software, pre-release software on a day-to-day device, you're being foolish. Well, you can run and it. You are, you are risking, uh, I'm sorry, beta to me, or alpha or delta or whatever, beta to me means, and they explicitly say this, but the thing is, do not blame Apple if things don't work. Because beta software means it's not ready for release. It means, hey, here's a peek behind the curtain um, to see what we're coming up with, but we're not going to guarantee that it won't destroy everything. And I'm being totally serious. Betas can destroy everything. That is the purpose of a beta. A beta is software meant to be tested on non-critical devices. That's all I'm going to say. No, you're totally right. And yeah, anybody running the betas, myself included, um, it, you know, has no basis to complain about problems they encounter with that software at none at all whatsoever. You got to back up. You've got to expect that you're going to run into things that are going to, you know, not work as you would, as you would like them to. Absolutely. hundred percent. Uh, however, the other thing you said is also true. It is meant to be tested. And this is why Apple rolls this stuff out. They roll it out, not only to developers, but end users as part of the public beta. It's an opt in and it is meant to be tested so that they can collect your feedback. And, And so it, you know, it is good to, you know, like with this contacts thing, I reported it. Now, I, I didn't report it and say, you guys suck because it doesn't work. I mean, of course not. It, I know that it's not finished, but that's mm-hmm. the point. It's like, hey, I will help. Here you go. And I'm willing to help. So there you go. Yeah, it's fun. All right. On to Peter. Uh, no, let's jump down. Let's go. Let's go oh, to boy. Douglas here. Oh, I, I want to make sure we get these, the, the, this, these two that we talked through and then we can jump back. around. Oh yeah. All right. Douglas. Yeah. Uh, very good. So let me, uh, uh, let me click on that. And yeah. So, um, all right. So Douglas, I think asked some important questions. No, not who's going to be the president. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, we've seen enough of that. All right. President of the United States, it it's it's it, it's it's crazy, man. I don't know. I'm it's just always stop crazy. Right now. Yeah, but the, this this time I think it's crazier than normal. I don't um, think so. I think it's I think it's always crazy. really. I think it's always crazy, John. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Here's okay. So now, right. okay, we're gonna Dear do this. Dave and John. I have two hopefully simple questions. In both cases, a free method is good, but a reasonably priced commercial method is fine too. Number one, what is the best way of transferring my music CDs onto an external hard drive? I would like to keep the same quality and use the most flexible file format, uh, i.e. not iTunes only format. And that has me scratching my head a bit. And um, Number two, is it possible to screen share an iPad on a Mac? I know the reverse is possible. Um but is there some way I can see the screen of an iPad on a Mac? My mother has switched from Mac to using only an iPad, and I sometimes have to hear her tr- help her troubleshoot over the phone. It would be helpful to be able to see her iPad on my Mac. Let's do these in reverse, John. So answer the second one first, and then and then the first one, because, right, because the that'll first lead us into the next deep. question, too. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the second question is, um, there is a way. And it's kind of a well-hidden secret, Dave. And I, I was actually shocked when I learned about this. But you can share the screen of an iDevice with a Mac. Oddly enough, using the QuickTime player. Yes, the player. Now, dude, it's the player. I know. But it's also the recorder. The thing is, when you connect an iDevice with the latest OS um, to a Mac with a USB cable, once you plug it in, if you go into QuickTime player and say, File, New Movie Recording... 
at the pull down near the record button, you click on it and it should show camera sources and your iDevice will be one of them. So, um, if you're okay with, um, with the person you're trying to support recording a movie of whatever they're running into, then I would say that that's the way to do it. Yep. Right? That, it's the only way. Yeah. Uh, well, not the only way. The, the other way, uh, Dave. You can do it with, and, with like ScreenFlow <clears throat> and things like that. But. Well, I would say the second option here and, you know, TeamViewer. So the, the thing is TeamViewer, uh, a friend of mine, uh, my, my, my friend Jody told me about this. TeamViewer is a wonderful piece of open source software. Or not open. Uh, no, you, you pay for it uh, for commercial purposes. But for non-commercial purposes, TeamViewer is a cross-platform way of supporting people remotely. Um, TeamViewer does offer a iOS version. It, it's limited in that you don't get total control. Now, I use TeamViewer to actually support my parents on their iMac. Um, and it lets me have total control in the machine. Um because of the limitations, I think, of iOS, TeamViewer has an iOS version. It will let you share screen snapshots. Um, and I think, again, it's, it's because of iOS that that's the best they can do. Um, so I would say those, those are the two options, Dave. Either, either if you can convince the person on the other end to record a movie using QuickTime and send that to you to, do, to describe the problem, good. Otherwise, TeamViewer with their screen snapshot kind of thing. Oh, yeah. The, that, yeah. That's, that's sure. what I got. Yep. No, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. Move on to the next one. Or his first question. Yeah. Well, the first one. Um, you know, this is kind of an open question, and I, I got to admit my, my initial response sucked. Uh, I'll, I'll admit this, but um, uh, the question was, what is the best way of transferring my music CDs onto an external hard drive? I would like to keep the same quality and use the most flexible file f- format, uh, i.e. not iTunes only. And my response was, uh, again, I admit it sucked because I basically described my environment, uh, which is uh, kind of limiting. But the thing is, number one, I, I don't necessarily consider iTunes proprietary, Dave, and that I, it, it is a music among whatever else they put in the kitchen sink. But iTunes is a, a fine utility to manage your music and it shows you a lot of um so number one it can rip your cds and give you a lot of options uh, to do so and number two it can show you these as well and i think that's probably where the question is going here especially with the comment uh alluding to uh you know flexible file format um i'll just spit out what i do dave is that i have my library initially in itunes um and it's uh, mostly MP3s or AACs uh, at various, and, and this is where it gets interesting. So, so you you basically have two criteria that you should use, and, and Apple does cover this in a support article, which we'll link to. But you basically have two criteria when you're transferring music from a physical format to a, a or from a CD to a disc, and that's the bit rate and the sample rate. And uh, depending on what you're trying to do. Um, I understand the concern about losing quality, uh, and, and this gets into, especially you, Dave, as a musician and you're in bands and stuff, this gets into a whole, I mean, we could have a fist fight over this, um, as far as, you know, should I use, you know, uh, what bit rate, what sample rate and stuff like that. And that's where I'd like to hand it to you here. Um, because I, 
I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm looking to you for your advice. So, so my description of my environment, I don't think it was very useful to our listener, but I think your expertise will, uh, will be. Yeah. So if you want to, here's the thing. I mean, should he rip using iTunes to sure. whatever format? I mean, I, is that, is that cool? iTunes is fine. Um, okay. it, it does a great job. My recommendation and and it's for many reasons the 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 easiest of which to cite is that storage is cheap is that if you're going to rip your CDs and this is coming from someone who has ripped their CD library no less than 3 times because the <laughs> first time no the first time we did it to you know like 128k mp3s okay and that was fine and then I realized it wasn't fine because I had some tracks that were 256K AAC that I had purchased from Apple. And on our Sonos system, those sounded so much better. I mean, it was, it was right. remarkable. So to, so to be clear, we're talking about one facet of the audio file, and that's the bit rate. Yeah, <clears throat> that's correct. And the higher the bit rate, I, I would say the bit rate directly relates to the accuracy are you well, with me on this? It, um, Not the frequency range, because sample rate is the frequency range, but bit rate is, I, I would say, the qual- uh, uh, to a certain extent, the quality of the analog to digital conversion. Yeah, it's how much Did data right? are you going to throw away? And and the lower the bit rate, the more data you're throwing away as part of the, the compression process. Right? So higher bit rate is bigger file size. Correct. Has, uh, and then you have these formats that are lossless, which yeah. will just do no... Uh, uh, but but it could be wasteful. I mean, you could be taking up tons of hard drives. So I'm, I'm, there's I'm, no, I'm trying to. But again, storage is cheap. So here's the thing. Okay. It, there is a remarkable difference between 128K and 256. I, I would say that most people on anything, on your iPhone speaker, you probably won't hear the difference. But on anything that's that's considered, you know, a, a home speaker, you will notice the difference on most tracks between 128K and 256, especially 128K MP3 and 256 AAC. AAC is a more efficient format so or a more efficient compression algorithm in general. So you'll get more data, better sound out of a 256K AAC than you would out of a 256K MP3. That said, there's no reason to stop there. Although I, I will say for most of us, myself included on most tracks, you won't hear the difference between 256 K AAC and anything higher on. And again, most people, most tracks, I can hear the difference between 256 K AAC and lossless on a few tracks. And these are tracks where I have trained myself to listen specifically for certain things. And then it's like, oh, yeah, I, I, the decay on this is getting cut off or, you know, the space in the room isn't the same. It's different. You might actually like one. You might like the lower quality better, but it, you, you could hear the difference if you're trained to. Um, and, but again, it's not in general. It would be specific tracks that you've got to train. But with storage being as cheap as it is, there's no reason not to just rip everything to Apple lossless. Um, it, it is half the size of the raw, um, it, you know, wave file or AIFF, depending on, you know, what your, your raw format would be. 
Uh, but I would do Apple losses and that anything I rip these days is Apple losses because I know now I'm not losing anything. I have all the data. I'm good. Okay. Now let me ask you this though. Now, another concern is what system you will use to play your music back. Right. Oh, it totally matters. But that's the thing is you don't in know that, today what you're going to play this back on in 10 years. Right. I, 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 what, what I'm trying to say, so I describe my environment. So I use a, a audio station. It, it publishes to a, a DLNA source. And then I use the, uh, the Denon Heos to listen. And it understands MP3s and AACs. And that's great. Um, th- my only concern would be that y- you don't want to pick a format that's too wacky. Like some people like FLAC and then there's Apple lossless. And the thing is whatever. Those two can- are pretty, are pretty well supported. Okay. All right. But, and that's my question to yeah. you is you don't want to pick a audio. Uh, I would say MP3 or AAC is pretty much a given with any modern playback technology that they'll understand that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Some and, may not get these, uh, you know, especially, I mean, I, I always see people with FLAC and some of these lossless get kind of crazy. Oh, FLAC. I, 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 you're right that some of them are crazy. I would, I would, I'd stop you from lumping FLAC in with the, the crazy people. FLAC is an awesome <laughs> format. No, it is. It's just not supported by iTunes, but it's supported right. by almost everything else. So it's really a, a great format because AAC lossless Apple's lossless format, which is, which actually it, we should call it ALAC Apple lossless audio codec. Um, ALAC as opposed to FLAC is not supported everywhere. So you you have to make a choice when you're doing lossless. If you want some level of size compression and FLAC and and ALAC are about the same in that they give you about half of what a, an AIFF or a wave file is. If you don't want to deal with that, then just rip to wave files. There's nothing wrong with that except they don't store metadata. And that's what I love about ALAC is it stores metadata and you can just like you can with AAC and, and hundred, you know, and uh, MP3, you can store your, your album art and your, your titles and all of that stuff in the format. And that's, that's handy. So, yeah. Um, I, I will, because it was asked in the chat room, sort of, I'll tell you the one album. And it's funny because most audio, many, not most, Many audio geeks will refer to this very same album, and it, it was sort of a surprise to me because I, I picked it on my own, and it seems like everyone picks it on their own. But there is one album that everyone goes to when they're having the debate about either compre- uh, you know, data compression or even lossless stuff some people say is still lossy when you're comparing, say, raw tapes to a CD which is technically lossless, but you know, any kind of digital conversion maybe loses stuff. Probably not though. At least not for the, it does lose stuff actually, but it's definitely, it's just not um, perceptible to the human ear, but some people believe that it is. And that's fine. The album where I can on a few tracks can tell you definitively whether it is lossless or, you know, high quality AAC is Dave Brubeck's timeout. And the funny thing is, this is an album that was recorded, you know, back in, I think in the fifties. Um, but it was, it was so well recorded and you hear nothing was really overly close mic'd. So you hear so much of the breath of the room in it that it allows you to hear this, like the decay on certain things and the piano notes and that where it, 
uh, Kathy's Waltz is the tune that, uh, you know, all you got to do is play me like the middle section of it. And I can tell you whether it's, it's lossless or not. Um, usually, well, I don't know on, on a good day, <laughs> but that's the album. Dave Rubick's time out. When you go to like the audio purists and they pull out their vinyl, that's the thing they pull out. They're like, Oh yeah, this is the album. It was recorded so well. It's crazy that that's the album from so long ago, but you know, so I guess to sum it up, consider what formats your playback system or systems will support. Cause you may want to get a Sonos. I have a Heos, uh, uh, iTunes streaming is another thing. So I, I would say that you got to consider first. Don't again, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I've said whack jobs, but you know, hmm. uh, you want to, you want to choose a form. Uh, so first thing is choose a format that is, uh, will work with the systems you want to play back with. Number two. Yeah. Uh, use the bit rate and sample rate as high as you're comfortable with. And then the format, uh, well, I, I just talked about that. Yeah. So I, I think we're, we're good on this. Cool. All right. Uh, sort of along the same lines, Josh asks, I'm preparing to take the plunge and convert all of my DVD collection to digital files to use in iTunes, Plex, or some other media serving application. I'm planning on using Handbrake to do the conversion and will be streaming the digital files to my Apple TV third gen. Are there any issues I need to think through before the hours of conversion begin? Yeah, man, of course, there's tons of things to think through because you, again, just like with the audio, you don't know what you're going to play it on in 10 years. So assume that whatever sacrifices you make today that you don't think will matter will matter in 10 years. Now, the question is, how often are you going to be watching these movies in 10 years that it actually matters? So uh, there's a few things to consider. The size, not only the file size, but the resolution. Now, you could take your Blu-rays and rip them down to, you know, 320 by 200 videos. And that would technically be the movie. And you could probably get the storyline out of it. But it would kind of suck to watch on your 60-inch TV today. And if you get a 4K, you know, 80 inch TV in five years, it's going to suck even more. So think about that, right? The second thing to think about, but that's the obvious one. Number one, right? The second thing to think about is what audio tracks you want. You at least want the audio track in your language. Do you want the director's commentary track? Do you want the foreign language tracks? Do, you know, these are, these are questions that, again, you want to answer today. Uh, so that you bake these things into whatever digital files you create and hopefully don't have to re-rip your library over and over and over again, like some of us crazy people do. And then number three, which subtitles to include? You definitely want to, and subtitles, this is where things get really weird because pulling, like pulling subtitles out of these things and baking them in the right way, you'll almost always get it wrong at some level. And five years down the road, you'll, you know, have to resolve that problem. But Definitely want to include, so I'm answering in reverse. You definitely want to include subtitles that are the forced subtitles. So for example, a movie that is in, if, if you speak English and you probably do, if you're listening to this show, but if a movie's in English and then there is, you know, a, a, a few snippets of Russian text where they put subtitles on the screen, you want those to be burned into the movie so that no matter where you watch it or how you watch it, you see those subtitles. But do you also then want, say, the French subtitles that are included or the Spanish subtitles that are included as an option? 
And you, again, you just have to make these decisions and how but, you make them into the file. I'll just interject a little thing is that yeah. I think a lot of movies, when they do have a occasional foreign language thing, they burn it into the movie and not a subtitle. No, it, they don't burn it in. It is, it really? is marked as a forced subtitle, really? but it's really? not burned okay. onto the screen. No, I just learned something. Yeah. So you, cause might, I've seen that in a lot of movies where they have, you know, totally. or whatever, you know, spy movie or yeah. whatever type of movie. I, I was not aware of that. I thought that they actually burned it into the video track. So what they're doing is they're enabling temporarily for subtitle. Cool. I yeah. learned at least one new thing today. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's totally true. So yeah, so and that's the problem. If you go and rip that movie without paying attention to how you're dealing with the subtitles, you'll watch it back and then suddenly there'll be that that scene in Russian and you're like, Oh yeah, I can't see what it is, you know. Oops. So and and then you have to think about your playback medium and does it support the way you're dealing with these subtitles. So burning those in can really help you as long as you don't mind them being burned in. It's similar to audio tracks, right? Today, you might be playing it back in, you know, stereo and nothing more than stereo. So you say, well, I can save space. I'll just rip stereo. But down the road, are you going to have a 5.1 system or a 7.1 system? If the audio is there, I recommend burning at least two audio tracks. Uh, even if you're only picking one language, I recommend burning a stereo track because that makes it easier for your iPad to play this back for you without having to work too hard and burn its battery. So burn a stereo track also then burn whatever the 5.1 track, whatever the most complex track is on that thing. And then you've got both and you've got the easy stereo one. If something wants to pick that, and then you've got this Uber complex one, that's everything, all the data you're good to go with the movie. I would burn, you know, if it's a DV, I would burn it to, to full resolution. Um, again, storage is cheap. You can always, and you know, you talked about Plex, uh, Plex will transcode a video. Like if I want to download a movie to my iPad, I can tell it, just download it medium quality. I don't need high quality on my iPad unless I'm going to use my iPad to power a, a larger TV at my destination. But if I'm traveling and I know that I'm only going to watch the movie on my iPad, I just tell Plex to transcode to medium. And so on the fly or in the background, whichever it transcodes it. And then, and then to my iPad, I download this much smaller version, but on the Plex library, I have this big monster video file that will look as good as it possibly can anywhere. So again, you know, my, my, my feeling is storage is cheap, burn as big as, as big as the data requires you to. And, uh, and, and then that way you don't have to do this again in five years when you get a new TV. Groovy. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. That's what I got. Yep. Um, let's, uh, let's wrap up with, with Mike here. Cause you might have a little bit of a, uh, a little, a little battle. And I like that. That's good. Mike asks, I have a 24 inch 2009 iMac mid year. So it's off of Apple's list of supported devices for Sierra. The machine has been great. For so long, it's set aside as the screen uh, has a yellow tint to the display. Uh, there's been little point in upgrading to SSD with an obvious mother motherboard issue. I've been thinking to retire it for a while, but the most recent Sierra requirements uh, were the final nail. My question is about backing up the hard drive or rather archiving it. This one 
This would be a one-time clone for potential reference purpose only, not a recurring backup. Past machines that have been put to pasture, I've used an old external hard drive for cloning and set them aside. As you guys have covered, externals wear out over time, especially hard drives that are not spun up enough. Drives are cheap, so doing this again seemed like a reasonable option. Then I remembered hearing on your show, or maybe it was MacCast, could have been both, about backing up or cloning to a disk image using Carbon Copy Cloner or SuperDuper, SuperDuper or even Disk Utility. This way, it's just a single file, though large, and can be stored on other large media, a NAS, etc. I'm curious as to your thoughts about these two options and if either of you have done them uh, much with this in the past when archiving machines. Yeah, I have. And um, for this purpose, my feeling is that doing a disk image clone is going to be much better um, of the, the, the much, much more preferred of the two options. And for several reasons. First, if you store it on your NAS, there's some fault tolerance, right? As you said, the drive, if you, if you clone it to a drive and that drive dies, the data is gone. But if you clone it to your NAS and one of the drives dies, well, your NAS has some fault tolerance, so you're okay. Um, secondly, though, is easy access. With a disk image on your NAS, you can mount it anytime you like, and you can mount it any way you like. So you can mount it read-only, and that way you're just pulling data off knowing that you're not ever going to be changing what that drive looked like, and it, it truly lives as a snapshot in time. And plus, it's just easy access. It, your NAS is on your network. You can get it uh, from anywhere, really. Uh, so I, I would do this as a disk image with, without even thinking twice about it. But I believe my good friend in Fairfield, Connecticut, would, would disagree with me. I shake my fist at you. Yeah. Well, no, I'll offer a counterpoint. Point, counterpoint. Um, number one, uh, as, as we've seen with... Um, our friend Time Machine, uh, disk images can tend to get corrupt. And if they get corrupt, game over, all right? Number two, I like personally to have a bootable backup. An image, although it can be converted to a bootable backup, is not bootable. It's mountable, as you pointed out, but yeah. it's not bootable. Um, and the thing is, if you're in an emergency situation where you absolutely have to get to this backup and boot from it to retrieve some sort of data, I think a bootable uh, external hard drive is a viable option. Though I, I, I'll concede um, to my, my candidate here. <laughs> but I will concede, uh, I, I, if you had to choose between the two, I would, uh, I would lean towards uh, the disk image. Though if you can afford to, Do both. I would say... Do both yeah. because I've been in situations and this is the whole bootstrap problem is that what if you're in a situation again where you don't have a machine that can take an image and convert it to something usable, you're kind of in trouble. But if you have something bootable, it saves the day. Um, that That's my only uh, uh, commentary uh, or the nuances that I would introduce on this. So if you could do yeah. both, yes. Otherwise... Yeah, I'm 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 okay with the image, especially on a NAS. I mean, the NAS is actually a bonus. Yeah. Now, if you could store it, uh, though, here I'll I'll add a I'll add an angle to this. If you could store it on an external RAID array, a bootable RAID array, maybe that's the best of both worlds. Um, yeah, what do you would, think? 
I'm trying to think. You can't boot from iSCSI on the Mac because the Mac doesn't natively support iSCSI. So that wouldn't that because that would be the like the absolute best of all the worlds because you're storing it on a network drive. It's a RAID array, but it's just a blob of data. So you know, there's I don't know. Yeah, there's no there's no magic answer. Well, what I'm saying, no. I mean, you can use software RAID whether it's through Apple's disutility, which now they make it almost impossible to access without yeah. doing major voodoo. Or a third-party RAID utility. So I would say if, if if you could do a bootable image or a bootable external RAID array, I would say that would be the best of both worlds. But, you know, that involves time and resources and, and multiple drives, and you may not want to do that. So, Because um, I understand your point about a single point of failure. Single point of failure is never good, and if you put it on an external drive and it fails, well, you're out of luck. Whereas your point is, is very good that, yeah, if I put it on a NAS as an image, yeah. uh, it, it's probably not going to disappear. No, it's not. You're right. Probably not. I mean, unless the NAS disappears, but you know, that that's the problem with any single, it, it, it does become now a single point of failure in that mm-hmm. the NAS itself is the only place that data lives. Unless your NAS is backed up to the cloud. Which it should be. And then you're right. good to go. So I hear the band, and boy, I hope you got the AC, Dave. I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the, the band is, is totally spoiled here in the studio, by the way. Oh, the AC okay. and, and everything. Yeah, I know. It's crazy up here. Um, I wanted to talk through, though, our, our current list of deep dive ideas. And I actually added one during the show, John. So the list that I, that I have, and much of this has come from... Uh, email that I've gotten from you folks, but I'll share it, and uh, and we'll we won't necessarily go in this order. But these are these are the things that are on deck. So a uh, a backup deep dive, uh, a Plex deep dive, a uh, storage management deep dive dealing with you know where you put your data, how you deal with that, buying advice for new Macs, new iPads, new iPhones, cord cutters. Right, we we dabbled in that a little bit but that's the point is we've dabbled in all of these things i think they they could all be uh worthy of a deep dive episode and then the one that uh, that i added today while we were talking john is sort of a networking primer you know you you, you mentioned i don't want to get into the osi stack and and you're right with this episode that that's probably too deep to go but it's not too deep to go in a general sense and we could go there and really kind of give you know a little bit of uh context so so that's what we have on the list i share that with you uh to hopefully spark more ideas about deep dives but that obviously gets us uh, several several episodes more than several so we'll see passwords no password management from uh from kiwi graham that's a that's a good one so and then os 10 server OS 10 server. Thank you very much. Yeah, 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 man. Let's Which, see. Um, it's great. I've dabbled with it. It's great when I want to want something it does well. Yeah. But, um, yeah. It's good. And actually, it'd be great uh, for those. Uh, uh, I know one or two of our listeners work in an enterprise environment and do deploy Mac OS 10 server. And if we could hear your horror stories or we might be good to have a guest for the of, OS 10 server one, too. Actually, I think we've got some offers uh, yeah. from people that use it way more often than we do. Yeah, um, no, that that would be good with these deep dives is to have someone walk us through uh, some of the stuff that, that we don't know. So, yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. If you want to tell us what we don't know, Dave, or you want to tell us what we do know or you have a question or a comment or a tip. 
I want to... Uh, whatever. Um, there's an email where you can let us know about this, Dave, and it's feedback at MacGeekGab.com. This is a really weird, John. I feel like for much of this episode, we have traded places, and uh, I'm not sure which one of us is Eddie Murphy, but <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, I think you said feedback at MacGeekGab.com. And I most certainly did say feedback at MacGeekGab.com, but there's also another address for those of you who would like to throw some coin at us to support our efforts and help us pay the mortgage and make sure we're not on the corner in a cardboard box. <laughs> no one wants that. It's really hard to car- to uh, podcast from a cardboard box. We well, would not try, impossible, though, though yeah, we especially would if it. you got Wi-Fi. That's right, but, um, yeah. but that address is premium at MacEgap.com. And Dave, where, where can people learn about the... We've re, we've redone the site here, so I think some things have changed. But where can people learn about our premium? Actually, you option? can you can still learn a premium. You just go to macgeekab.com, and it will actually link you to the old site. In the next couple of weeks, we'll move things over to uh, to the new engine. But but for you, it, it doesn't matter. Just go there, and, and you can still sign up, and it all works as it always has, and uh, and all of that good stuff. So, John, there's a phone number though. Did you know that? I did. I don't immediately recall the first few digits because it's two two four eight 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 geek and John Geek is four three three five and Dave as you and I have learned the SMS option is uh, it works persnickety no 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 it works from their end it just the way we 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 receive we we receive them Uh, replying is interesting. Our replying to your SMS uh, is... It's reliable what? when you do it one way. So there you go. It's Google yeah, Voice. You, they, they say you can reply via email, and it sometimes works for John, and that's, and it never works for me. So <laughs> I, you know, I don't know what that means. But uh, I was baffled. Yeah, you would send me things, and or I would send things to you, and you would send things to me, and the yeah. thing is I almost always... When I replied to something, it would work. For you, it didn't. I don't know if it's because I'm on Verizon and you're mostly on AT&T. No, no it has or nothing. You were able to reply SMS to me. It's an SMS gateway. Or, it's, it's uh, the, yeah, it's the email gateway something. I don't know. But it, anyway, your SMSs get to us, no questions asked. So feel free to send them to that number. Also, I, feel I'll, free to visit us on Facebook. Uh, go to MacGeekGab.com slash Facebook. That will redirect you to our awesome Facebook group. We're now almost at 1,100 members. So thank you to wow. everyone that's joined recently. Yeah. Oh, it's growing like crazy and doing really, really well. Um, it's, it's fantastic. You can ask questions and people just answer. Uh, sometimes we answer. Sometimes we ask. And you folks help. So it's it's fantastic. Uh, I want to thank Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com for providing all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. Of course, I want to thank our sponsors. And that starts with Fat Cat Software at fatcatsoftware.com slash MGG where coupon code MGG saves you 20%. Gazelle at gazelle.com Smile at smilesoftware.com Otherworld Computing at maxsales.com Barebones Software at barebones.com and Casper at casper.com slash MGG MGG saves you 50 bucks. Because it was the Trading Places episode, uh, I hope somebody uh, says, you folks are a couple of bookies, but um, really, the only advice that I have to share 
is regardless of what you do, don't get caught. Made up.